Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Professor, Dr. Professor, Dr. Dr. Professor Jordan Peterson. Jordan is a professor of psychology, clinical psychologist and an author. He wrote the famous book now, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. And his latest book was released this year, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. This is a very big, hefty brilliant two-hour podcast that is available in full uninterrupted on luminary however this hour you can have for free here on your regular podcast platform if you'd like to listen to the entire podcast and all of my weekly under the skin podcast with people like vandana shiva edward snowden coming up all you have to do is download luminary you can get a subscription for as little as two dollars 99 a month with their annual or our their annual plan plus a seven day free trial to get started that's less than a dollar per podcast and i think it's worth it there are over 170 podcasts on there already under the skin is pretty fantastic the second half of this uh podcast with jordan is where it gets deep personal and somewhat controversial visit luminary podcast to start your free trial and listen to the full two hours of this conversation with dr professor jordan peterson it's not available in all markets yet but surely one day shall be and is subject to local currency terms apply i also want to let you know that i've got a brand new meditation podcast called above the noise coming out on the 21st of april also only on luminary so for your subscription you get under the skin and above the noise that's two podcasts a week i'll be releasing a new guided meditation every wednesday here's the trailer Hello and thank you for joining me for Above the Noise from Luminary with me, Russell Brand, where we, together, using various meditation techniques that I'll guide you through, move above the noise in our lives, both inner and outer. Join me on a meditation journey where I'll be releasing new meditations every week with my new podcast, Above the Noise, only on Luminary. Right, well, now it's time for the conversation with Jordan. What's the what bit? Oh, it's the whole hour, the whole first hour. Oh, it's fantastic. Did you enjoy it, Jen? Yeah, it was great. What was the best bit? I liked, oh, I can't give it away though, can I? You could just allude to it. I liked when he talked about his YouTube controversies, his interviews, and oh, why yeah. he's, why it's right that women should be challenging the patriarchy. He said that it's good that they're doing it. It's their job. Our job. <laughs> <laughs> you can identify however you want, can't you? you we all can. I'm fine. <laughs> well, Jen, you can say that, but I'm out here looking at you. And it do not look fine. It looks like a maniac. It looks like... I thought it was dressed very classically. You, you got them flares on, haven't you? That's classic. Classic flares? <laughs> so that's what you're They're the best jeans I've ever bought. How so? They're so it's like being hugged. Ooh, hugged by a pair of trousers. A trouser I put them hug. on and I was like, mm. <laughs> You were like, mm. <laughs> Is that what you did, honestly? Mm, no, mm. no. What, you nose. sucked your teeth? You let your top teeth go over your bottom lip? No, and went, I just mm. liked it. They were and nice. It's wretched. <laughs> I like to do a listener shout out. Listener shout out. Yeah. This one is to Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. the Super Vet, who listens to our banter decanter. Let's listen to the jingle now. Banter decanter. Yeah. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Why don't you have a jingle? But a jingle. That would be what it would call jingle. it. The jingle. Okay, well, now you have to make it to say another thing. We're working on the jingle tomorrow. Hup, hup. No. <laughs> it's, the, it's time for the jingle. Jingle. Oh, no, mm. <laughs> no, mm. it'd be like that. Uh. Oh, no, no, <laughs> time for the jingle. It, but no, no, time for the jingle. That's how I do it. That's how I do it. Oh, God. Justin Hawkins, do your damnedest. It's time that Justin Hawkins was credited as the creator for these jingles. We have credited him, haven't we? I'd like to say that I'm very proud of these achievements of his. Okay. I'll tell him. I'll Wait, can you this, can I'll he? Play him this Does he subscribe? Yeah. That was, that's another one for the jingle. <laughs> oh, no. Tip. Don't want to for the jingle. Um, he watches your Instagram videos. They're free. I want a luminary. Will you pay? Yeah, you're not paying him for these. That's a good point. Give him a free one. Give him a free one. Give him a free pass. Send him one of the codes. Send him a free code. He's got to have it for free. Okay. 
He's surely one. Uh, he'll sh- he, if he knows <laughs> you, he must be sick and tired of you, and no, he'll be glad. He's really nice to me. No, he's, he can't be very well. So here's some of the comments <laughs> from the Vandana Shiva episode. Comments. We've got a jingle for that, haven't we? Yes. Now time for comments. Deirdre Arthur. I wonder if that's Deirdre, who I know. Vandana may be single-handedly be saving the planet. Picture of planet. And with your help, exclamation mark, heart, hands. If you hadn't said that, I'd have added it. Idiasaquita. Oh my goodness, I cannot get enough of this woman. And Russell, you were helping people like myself feel even more empowered. I feel everything you're saying and sharing and how clearly moved you were in this conversation. I was moved, weren't I, Jen? Yeah, you were. What did you do? Look away. Yeah. Look away. Because you were doing that kind of... I didn't squint. You did. You squinted your eyes shut. Yeah, you did, though. Like dog's bottoms there. (laughs) That's what an impression of you, though. I wouldn't have done that, Jen. I wouldn't have been so overwhelmed that I'd have allowed my eyes to look like dog's bottoms. I've got a little thing called Dignitas. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I feel everything you're saying and sharing, how clearly moved you in this conversation. It can't be easy to work with that Irish woman. Oh, thank you, Idila Sequita. Absolute self-discovery. Excellent. What a knowledgeable speaker. Such simplistic truth, which seems so radical to Western civilization. (laughs) Do a bit of phlegm in your mouth. I don't get a phlegm in the mouth. You're full of the stuff. When we're doing our group meditations, because we do group meditations, yeah, because we're quite spiritual. We're quite spiritual, aren't we, here at work? Oh, yeah. Jen, you had a whole bunch of phlegm in your mouth sloshing about. I can see it. It it gathers at your bottom teeth, just behind them. Your phlegm? (laughs) You've got five flavours of phlegm. And you've got all the different consistencies. Yours like a phlegm ecosystem. Flotsam and jets phlegm is what you've got. Jingle. Five flavours of phlegm. <laughs> Five thicknesses and textures of phlegm. Up at your palate, that what? rough palate of yours. That's <laughs> because I said you, you burnt your mouth and you didn't like that. You've got a rough palate. I do have a rough palate. It's like the roof of one of them caves that people go caving in. It's you know, probably it's weird if you say that because people be like, how do you know what the, how rough a palate is? Staggle tights yeah. up your rough palate. <laughs> What's that? That's what I was going to say. If people are going to wonder why, how you know uh, the fight. You can tell that her palate's in chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Call that a palate. Who's going to be listening? Oh, Jordan Peterson. Here, oh, fast sorry. forwarded through this. Jordan oh, Peterson no. and Michaela Peterson. There we go. And I like both of them. Go forward another 15 seconds. No, go, hey, go forward another 15 seconds. <laughs> That's Jordan oh. Peterson, right? Go forward another 15 seconds, hey? Now listen, bucko. Not listening to this crap from that Jenny Mae Finn, bucko. Be like that. Uh, Alan Leavitt a beautiful and powerful interview I was deeply moved by how emotional at Russell Brand got why have you included so many of these and where the hell is Anne Hoy Steph Hoy (laughs) Steph Hoy where is she you've you've alienated her like you alienated everyone have you been on any more trotty dates that was aggressive have you though no of course not wasn't aggressive there's no point there is no point, not for them. Noel Fitzpatrick <laughs> listens to this while he's doing his exercise, while he's doing his surgery. So this is, is he a, a shout fan out. of me? He doesn't like you, Jen, no. He does like me. A lot of people don't. And like, well, he sees you as a fellow Irish person. Yeah, well, that's just a... That's a just a fact. fact. yeah. That's just a fact, yeah. an accident of birth. Not the only accident oh. surrounding your birth. Oh. <laughs> oh my, come my, on, too much? No. My dad said I was an accident. What, sorry, Jenny? My dad had already said that. But you were an accident. Well, my mum said I was very on purpose. So dad says on purpose. No, dad says accident. Mum says on purpose. Who to believe? And that's what we're doing <laughs> as our poll on this week's episode of Under the Skin. Is Jenny a deliberate baby or nature's cruelest mistake? I'll leave that for you, the listeners, to decide. And no, much of that ridicule there, that was for your amusement there. Look, we've been frivolous, we've been silly. Now let's have an intelligent conversation. The first thing you need to do if you're planning one of those is extract Jenny May Finn. I acknowledge that. That's what we're going to do now. It's me and Jordan. I'm there though. <laughs> I'm there though. <laughs> Ruining it in the background. Did You You weren't even properly listening, I don't oh, think. Was. You probably sat there nibbling the tops off of cream eggs and trying to <laughs> suck out its fondants. Weren't you? I did eat a cream egg during one, two podcasts, actually. What is this problem you've got? Easter. 
Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff. So some people, it's a holiday for Jenny May Finn. It's an addiction. All right, so let's listen to this wonderful conversation with Professor Doctor. I can't remember what his title is. Do you know? It's Jordan Peterson. It's the Doctor. great Jordan Peterson. Doctor Peterson. It's a wonderful conversation. There are some challenging moments. There's some tearful moments. We get into cultural war stuff. Hope you enjoy this. Did I swallow too much spit then, Jenny? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoy Did I look shocked? You just you just looked your normal self, Jen. That's the <laughs> sad fact. Let's, let's listen to this uh, episode with Jordan Peterson. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful yeah. route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. All right. Apologies for the delay. It's no trouble at all. Trying to make sure that I'm completely here for this. As much completely here as I can be. You look completely there. You look very handsome. You look different from when I saw you just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, well, the day we talked wasn't a very good day for me. Really? This is better. And I've had a... a last two weeks have been markedly better. And so I was diagnosed with sleep apnea and uh, severe sleep apnea and so now I have a machine and now I'm actually getting some sleep for the first time in who knows how long 10 years yeah, you maybe good. you look good are you alright to start are you alright for that to be used would you like this to be a clear in um, we can we can go according to your your requirements I'm ready thanks Jordan it's so lovely to see you thanks for doing this I'm looking forward to the conversation a lot well you look like you're um reawakening i'm really interested in the sort of i wonder if you have given your uh studies of uh archetypes and archetypal narratives how you feel about of course I, we've talked somewhat about your suffering and i get the sense from speaking to both to you and michaela that it's not something you want to sort of rehash and rehearse especially and i certainly understand to as much as anyone can the kind of uh, medical problems that you went through um how do you relate to this reemergence into the public sphere? How do you feel about it after what was a very peculiar, unique and, yeah, it's very specific emergence into public consciousness the first time? And then what seems to have been a, a series of real trials. How do, you, how do you feel now and how do you fit that into your understanding of uh, psychology and in, indeed, to, indeed to your, into your writing? Well, I feel uncertain grateful, uh, afraid, and excited, sometimes all simultaneously, and I cycle through those. Um, I mean, I was w dancing with my wife a couple of days ago, and she said to me, I didn't, I can't believe I'm alive. And I said, I can't believe I'm alive either. I can't believe we're both here. And it, it was because we hadn't danced together, I suppose, probably for two years. Um, so it was a big deal. And we're both shell-shocked by what's happened and by the fact that maybe she's, she's doing very well. Um, she looks healthy. It's been two years now for her. Um, and things seem to be turning around for me. I mean, I was... I didn't think I'd get I didn't think I was going to live. Yeah. Really? Oh, it was it was and I don't mean once or twice. I meant for a whole year. It seemed impossible to me that I could survive. I I was too sick to go on as far as I could tell, but I didn't die, which was a shock on a daily basis. And now well, it, things are much better, have been getting much better over the last four months, you know, and, I t and then associated with that, I was very ill and immobilized because of that and in a tremendous amount of pain and anxiety. And then I also wasn't engaged in any activity. I, I mean, I did edit my book during all of this. That's the one thing I more or less hung on to, but I didn't have an occupation and it wasn't obvious to me that I would ever have one again. I didn't know what would happen to my public reputation, say, if it was salvageable, um, I didn't know if I would ever be able to do any of the things that I had become accustomed to doing because they were all complicated things. Like my clinical practice was very complex. Being a professor is complex. 
doing podcasts and, and interviews is very complex. Lectures, it's all difficult. And if you're not healthy and at the top of your form, you can't, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all in some sense. And so it wasn't obvious to me how I could start that up again, or if I could, or how people would respond, or if I had any right to do it. Or, and so I've been, you know, tentatively putting a foot forward, mostly with YouTube interviews and podcasts. Um, and so far that seems to be working. And I started writing yesterday. I wrote for the first time in a year, I wrote some two pages of original material and that's a huge deal. And so today when I was showering and trying to get myself upright, instead of being racked with pain, um, I, my mind would wander to what I was writing. And that was a real relief to be engaged in that creative enterprise again. And so it's all of that. And I'm shocked and, and I still really don't know what is going to happen next. So we'll see. When we spoke on um, uh, your daughter's podcast, on Michaela's uh, podcast, which is, on, which is on YouTube, you talked about gratitude. And now you're, um, you know, what I was interested to hear you describe your state as somewhat uncertain and fearful, in particular because I feel that m many of the people that uh, have criticized you and many of the people that adore you. Uh, attracted were attracted to at least this perception of uh, s sort of strident certainty, ethical and moral certainty, uh, intellectual rigor. Have you? Do, is there anything that you would alter about the kind of uh, the sort of the, your position as a, a public figure prior to these series of crises? Do you see it as a sort of a necessary and um, in the sort of an, uh, uh, just an, the kind of evolutions that narrative produces all the time, or would you say there's anything that you would uh, now withdraw or, or, or reframe? Well, I would say that whatever transformations might be occurring with me, I, I would say occur, have occurred in the realm of ideas. Um, the, the new book that I've written, Beyond Order, is more communitarian. It's more liberal than the first book, technically speaking. It's also because it concentrates on the dangers of order rather than the dangers of chaos. And so that's a nice balance to the mm. first book. And that was part of the plan, the vision from the beginning. Um, you know, people who are concerned with an excess of chaos tend to be more conservative. And people who are concerned with an excess of order tend to be more liberal, all things considered. And I started with a book about chaos for and concluded at least this two-book series with a book on on uh, the dangers of order. But it's also, the second book is also more uh, communica communitarian in, in nature. So I've stressed, for example, the importance of community and relationship in the maintenance of sanity. Like we outsource the problem of maintaining our own sanity to the people around us, and then all we have to do is pay attention to their cues. But that, and some of that's derived from what's happened to me. I mean, what I've observed over the last two years has been an unbelievable outpouring of um, support for my wife and my family and me, with punctuated exceptions, obviously, but broadly speaking, my family has come through. My, my family and my wife's family have been so supportive of us. It's it's it it exceeds any expectations I would have had to begin with. They people went out of their way so much to come live with us for weeks at a time and and take care of either her or me or both of us and um and that was family and friends and and so I have a friend right now who walks with me every day. He's a friend from college and. Uh, you know, I have a really close friendship with him that's really been cemented hard again over the last six months. But he came to visit me in Russia. You know, I had lots of people who went way out of their way. And it was life-saving for both of us. And uh, then I got a tremendous amount of support from my viewers and listeners and readers. And, and you know, they sent, when Tammy was in the hospital, they sent hundreds of letters talking about praying for us. And, you know, my sister printed a lot of those out and put them up on the hospital wall in bright colors. And, you know, it was really helpful. And so, you know, I'd realized, you know, you can think about this in some sense. I think about it anyways as an elaboration of, of the hero mythology, which I'm very interested in. You know, the, the archetypal hero goes into the unknown 
and gains something of value, or sometimes fights a tyrant and, and, and reconstitutes the kingdom, but I will leave that part of it out for now. You go out into the unknown and find something of value and bring it back, but then it's shared and distributed. That's the second part of that story, the communicative aspect of it. And that's partly, I mean, I'm very interested in communicative technology, but, but it's also the case that an element of that is that that's something that, it's like King Arthur and the round table. King Arthur's the king and the knights are, you know, in some sense subordinate to him, but not really. It's a round table and every knight enters the forest at the place that looks darkest to him. But there's a group effort there and the redemptive process, let's say, that, which is what hero mythology concentrates on in the final analysis, is something that is everyone's responsibility, but that we all need help with. It's so interesting because it's your problem, but you can have help. It's okay that you have help, that everyone is on board. And so I think that I understand that more deeply, what that means now. And, and hopefully I'm expressing that in, in my last book. And while in, you know, all these YouTube interviews that I'm doing, not on other people's shows like I am with you right now, but I'm trying to let other people speak. I mean, I interrupt a lot and I talk a lot, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to highlight the accomplishments of other people as much as I possibly can. And I'm really happy about that. And it's really necessary. There's, there's no negative to it at all. This um, journeying into darkness and returning with the bounty or boon in order that it may be communally shared is, yes, uh, like an important and uh, powerful narrative. Do you think that we are somewhat politically bereft when in the narrow spectrum of uh, countries such as the United States, there is a heavy focus on individualism wherever you might fall in that admittedly narrow spectrum, i.e. liberalism, for want of a better word, is seems to me to be focused very much on the individual, the rights of the individual, the role of the individual. And traditionally, uh, the pursuit of the American dream and individualism has been sort of perhaps is the backbone of I mean, political conservatism in America. Do you think this kind of dearth of real communal values is a strong and or even governing factor in this kind of n n political nadir, America in particular, but the world seems to be experiencing? It's a good question. I mean... I, I do think in the West that if we go back to that fundamental hero mythology, the hero story, is that the romantic emphasis is often placed on the journey outward and the, and the heroic encounter, and not so much on the return home and the distribution. And I, each of those are equally important, clearly. I mean, if you find something valuable and then you can share it with other people, obviously that multiplies the value. And... I do think that you're right, that, that the, the liberal message has emphasized the individual element of that and comparatively de-emphasized the other element, but I don't see anything really nefarious in that fundamentally. I think it's, it isn't obvious that we know how to do that. I can give you an example, okay? So, well, I've been talking to people like Bjorn Lomberg and Matt Ridley and, and Michael Shermer and, and, uh, um, uh, who else would fit in that category? Uh, Steven Pinker, Th these the rational optimist types, materialist atheists, fundamentally, and that, that's not a criticism, enlightenment types, and they keep hammering home the message that if you look at the data, uh, 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 Marion Tupi has written a beautiful coffee table book showing this, it's 10 trends that every educated person should be aware of, and, and then a bunch of microtrends, if you look at major economic trends globally, so many things are getting better so quickly, although still incrementally, that it's really, uh, it's unparalleled in human history and it's accelerating. But it isn't obvious how to make that romantic. And, and, and so it's, it's a problem with storytelling to some degree. It's like, well, what do you say to young, if Black Lives Matter or Antifa or, or, or right-wing um, groups that 
have a conspiratorial element called to a romantic element in young people. They, they offer them an adventure, and that's really important, but an adventure, the adventure of incremental rational progress isn't an adventure, right? It, it's almost the opposite of that. It's slow and incremental and, and diffuse, and it's hard to make that into an adventure. And so the communitarian element is, it's not easy to transform into a motivating message. And I mean, that's, I was trying to do that to some degree in, in, in Beyond Order, you know, that you, trying to make that into a, into a message that was of motivational significance. And that's really, it, you have to do that if you, you know, because look, there's, there's nothing that's not within our grasp now, Russell, as a, as a, as a species. We can do whatever we want. Now we have to figure out what we should do. And then we have to figure out how to communicate that in a way that's motivating to everyone, so everyone's on board. That's the problem that faces us. I become concerned by these, this idea of progressivism. I feel that it is sometimes used to underwrite a kind of uh, intransigence around power, and I think it's used as a panacea to dissolve the voices of discontented people. The idea of looking at, like, look, you can see that the average, like a hundred years ago, there were people who have had rickets in Victorian England. I feel that uh, yeah. the my, the challenge is that for me, what that does spiritually is it denies something that I can plainly see before my eyes that big corporations and state power are collaborating in order to conserve power and to I think people are becoming less and less able to exercise agency in ordinary life. I'm talking about countries like, like you know, anglophonic countries in particular. I think the pandemic has, you know, uh, whether you know most people would say necessarily has brought about a lot, a lot of legislation that's not been through due democratic process. I feel that it's it allowed big tech to have more access to people's data, and I personally query the objectives of. Uh, like some of these uh, uh, almost insurmountably large corporations, particularly when they have uh, governments that are quick to placate them and operate primarily in their service. Look, you've put, you, you put your finger on a fundamental problem. I mean, imagine, so for the incremental progressivists, they look at the average, right? The average. And if you look, for example, at the average number of calories that someone in sub-Saharan Africa has access to now, it's like it's they have access to as many calories per day as the typical person in Portugal did in 1960. So it's a walloping transformation. And they, they've passed uh, satiety. So what will happen now is that the next problem on the consumption side that faces sub-Saharan Africans on average will be a rise in obesity. But the problem with the, with statistics or even ideas that concentrate on the average is you, you don't take into account the distribution. And so just because the average has improved massively doesn't mean that there's not problems of unequal distribution, severe problems of unequal distribution. So imagine we have two, these are existential problems though, in some sense, they're not political problems, they're deeper than political problems. You have the problem of absolute privation and, and that's, the, that's the normal state of affairs. You're, you're born with nothing in some sense, right? It left to your own devices, you just starve and die. So that's, that's the susceptibility to absolute privation. And then the second problem is the susceptibility to relative privation. And those are both big problems. You know, and so the optimists say, well, look, we're really, really uh, solving the problem of absolute privation. And they say, well... Every day, 200,000 people in the world are lifted out of the UN's definition of abject poverty. So maybe they slide from $1.90 a day to $2.10 a day. And that's to be celebrated, but then at the same time, you can say, well, yeah, but they're still living on $2.10 a day. And both of those are right simultaneously. Like, it is something worth celebrating, but it's also, it doesn't, there's still the lingering problem of relative deprivation. And when you hear everybody rattling about inequality, that's why. And it's, val it's not like there's not a valid point there. I would also query those metrics somewhat in that 
that the, the, the lens through which we're regarding the problem is discounting, I think, a large part of what it is to be human. I just spent sort of an hour talking to Vandana Shiva, the Indian academic ecologist and uh, like she's a very powerful woman, incredibly anti-establishment, challenging the sort of the influence of Bill Gates, the the um, uh, the patenting of seeds over there in India, the negative impact of big tech on their agricultural industry and what she clearly regards as, uh, yes, malfeasance and a d- deliberate um, disruption of the Indian way of life. And like to speak, when I speak with uh, somebody like that, like these, I feel that that kind of data, and I, you know, I think I've spoken to some of the people you're talking about, Yuval Noah Harari, people I sort of admire and respect who tell good stories. I feel that those stories are, are promoted because they can be used to underwrite the myth of progressivism because materially, scientifically, medically, there's doubtlessly been so many incredible advances. And I think that what we neglect is something that it seems to me you're very interested in, our spiritual evolution, our personal awakening. And like as you said a, a moment ago Jordan the fact is is we could imagine and dream and create all manner of systems into being and that what we are prohibited from imagining what we're prohibited from creating it frustrates me but both from okay so we could think about that technically in some sense again so now we could say there's three problems there's an absolute privation problem there's a relative privation problem, and now there's also the problem of rank-ordering values. And I would say that's the spiritual problem. The spiritual problem is something like, well, what is most important and vital, and how do we know that that's what we're pursuing? And that's the fundamental religious question, which is, what is it that is of most value? What, what should orient, in the final analysis, what should orient us? So you see that expressed in stories like the Pinocchio story, for example, which I use consi- consistently because, well, it's a work of genius and, and millions of people have watched it and found it compelling. And so it's a cultural phenomenon. So it's worthy of in- inquiry. But so Geppetto orients himself to a star and that's what, and so he's properly oriented, right? He lifts his eyes above the horizon to something glittering and bright in the darkness. He's properly oriented and that's why he can raise Pinocchio to be something other than a puppet right? He, he can raise him up to be a fully developed human being. Uh, it's a religious issue. And, and the question is, well, what is the star that should guide us? And well, that's something we have to talk about an awful lot. I mean, I'm interested in hero mythology primarily because the stories we tell one another and have told one another from time immemorial constitute our attempts to orient ourselves properly in life towards whatever the highest value might be. And it's part of an ongoing discussion that the whole human race participates in that, that, that's, part, that's part of the process by which we, we, we identify and rank order and communally celebrate, let's say, and pursue our values. And it, it's of crucial importance to do that ritually and dramatically and also explicitly and philosophically. So... And it's, a, it's also a problem, it is a problem, when, I, uh, when I've talked to Bjorn Lomberg and, and Matt Ridley uh, and, and Marion Tupi, for that matter, about their work, I mean, one of the things, they're perfectly aware of this, that there's something lacking in the story of progress against absolute deprivation. It's not enough. That's, that's part of what makes it lack its compelling nature, apart from the criticism that you raised, which is, well, what about relative privation, which is a perfectly relative, relevant criticism. But you have to have both of those. Like, just because there's still relative poverty doesn't mean that victory over absolute poverty isn't worth celebrating. It it certainly is. No. So, okay, so we have to orient ourselves spiritually. Absolutely. I agree with that. There's no doubt about that. My sense is that this, um, you know, um, vanquishing of absolute poverty poverty is an inadvertent side effect of different objectives that are to do with the conservation and perpetuation of the abiding machinery of commerce capitalism and consumerism maybe an inadvertent consequence like for example when you don't you sometimes when you think of sl- like slavery and the abolition of slavery that that slavery was maintained for as long as possible then there comes a point where it's like oh god we can't get away with slavery anymore but we can we will re- we will rescind our right to have slaves but we will keep an economic class 
primarily made up of people, you know, in, say, the case of uh, the United States of America, made up from that same kind of background. You know, that these kind of... And, like, that can then be rightly labelled progress, but in terms of a kind of a an epiphany, a cultural and social, social epiphany. Now, I know this is difficult, Jordan, because I, I suppose I, I'm suggesting there are universals, that there is an absolute North Star that we can all refer to, but isn't any religious man making that claim that there is well, I'm, some... I'm, I think it's too. I think it's too one-sided, Russell, because, I mean, there's no doubt that corruption exists and that hierarchies can degenerate into power structures and become tyrannical and counterproductive. But that's what happens when they degenerate. It's, it's, that isn't how a properly functioned human hierarchy works. And they're not very stable if they degenerate in that manner. Uh, let me give you an example. You can tell me what you think about this. And, and then I'll talk about slavery particularly, because it wasn't just an economic calculation to get rid of slavery. I mean, there, Britain, the, the movement to abolish slavery was, was driven by truly believing Christians. They had a walloping effect over a number of decades in eradicating slavery. It was a moral move. And, you know, it was replaced in some sense by another kind of slavery. But one thing that happened in some sense is that as modern, the modern economic system displaced the slave system, which had existed forever, we all became our own slaves, right? Because most people enslave themselves for eight hours a day. And then they can be free men, the other 16. And... So we've substituted our own slavery and the slavery of machines for the slavery of others. And that wasn't only technical, it was also a moral decision. And I, I don't think you should discount the moral striving that went into that because it's an important part of the historical record. And uh, you, don't want to, you don't want to ignore the contribution of moral people in the past to our progress, right? Because it gives you a very dim view of humanity. Lots of people knew slavery was undesirable and wrong and, and risked a tremendous amount to... to to move beyond it. Actually, so, I wouldn't discount that moral contribution, uh, you know, with regard to any of the great cultural conversations and conflicts. But what I feel is that the, inverted commas, the system is most adept at absorbing what is required and repackaging. For example, when, um, like, you know, when British colonization of India ended, it, there, we sort of soon see the establishment of economic entities that are in enable a, a continuum of the of comparable relationships so ordinary life for many people in that region doesn't significantly improve i feel that most power that is conceded is conceded under the condition that it doesn't affect the interests of the powerful significantly that there are is a rarefied strata of society which is, I would say, somewhat immobile, although you, I suppose we could argue that the emergence of these new, the barons that have replaced oil and steel barons in the tech world, you know, that that is different. There's some sort of fluidity. There is, you know, I'm not arguing against that. But what I'm saying is, is that if we have a goal and i'm not i'm not talking about old you know like marxism socialism the left in those terms i'm actually talking about <laughs> i'm not talking about the realization of god's kingdom on earth like you know when you talk about in a personal way jordan the idea that there may be someone that would look benevolently upon you if they knew that you were living your life trying to be beautiful what type of world what type of communities what type of systems what type of dem democracies might we favor if um if this became our shared collective and and individual priorities and that's what we're trying to figure out russell that's why we're having this conversation yes that's what we're trying to figure out if if fundamentally i believe that that's 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 the purpose of real discussion and i think one of the reasons that youtube conversations like this have become so powerful is because you can actually have those discussions you know it's so what we're doing is so different than network tv it's it's so different it's so revolutionary like i was talking to a wall street journal uh uh reporter the other day and and i said well why do you like youtube and he said well the the conversations just follow this unpredictable thread forward and it's so interesting to watch them i said well that's the logos in action that's what you're seeing. There's nothing more compelling than that. So if we're doing this right, look, the last conversations we've had, including the very last one, have been received very positively. And I believe the reason for that is, I think, that to the best of our mutual abilities, we're trying to 
get smarter than we were before the conversation because of the conversation. Yes. And people respond extremely positively to that. And isn't that wonderful that that's the case? And so we, we, we are trying to figure this out. And I would also say, don't assume malevolence where ignorance is sufficient. You know, when you look at how a large system operates, you, you don't want to forget that part of the reason it's not doing so well is because people actually don't know how to do it better. It's not the only reason. Malevolence exists, for sure. But, you know, and then what do you do? Well, you try to dispel the ignorance, your own ignorance. What, what you and I are trying to do right now, hopefully, is to dispel our own ignorance and to share that process with the people who are watching and listening. I believe okay. that the reason that you had such a profound impact in your sort of um, roaring campaign through identity politics, through maleness, is because it's, to me at least it seemed as an observer, it's underwritten by years of clinical practice, a deep understanding of Jung, and, we, and you were genuinely uh, orating on b b conquering unconscious territories, of awakening out of the unconsciousness. And like when you say that now, you know, don't assume malevolence when uh, ignorance will suffice, and, you know, they, they know not what they do. Most people are unconscious, our systems are unconscious, but for me, there is a reason that mainstream media uh, prohibits and precludes certain types of discourse, favors other types of discourse. And, and this for me is because okay. there is well, a... Let's, let's take it apart for a minute. Let's take it apart because we'll start with the ignorance before malevolence issue. And so we'll look for non-moral reasons first and then go to moral reasons. And I think that's a, that's a safe approach because you don't cast stones any more than necessary that way. Well... There are massive technological differences between YouTube and network TV, despite the fact that they're both video. The first is, there's no bandwidth restriction. Bandwidth is now free. You and I can talk for as long as we want, and essentially no one has to pay for it except with their attention. And so, and so, and then it's permanent, whereas with network TV, it was evanescent. It evaporated as soon as it was spoken. Well, now this conversation will be around for probably longer than either of us would want it to be. It's as permanent as a book. And, th and that, what that means too is that I don't have to assume that my audience has a limited attention span or no memory anymore. Because they can go, I know that they can go out and find out things on their own. And so when I go to do a network TV interview now, it feels like I've transported myself back in time to 1950. And the person I'm talking to when I'm sitting in the green room before the interview, they're a person and we have a conversation. But as soon as the cameras go on, they're no longer a person. They're a puppet of a, of a machine. And I'm not saying that critically. I'm saying because the bandwidth was so incredibly expensive, the, the, it, there wasn't time for experimentation. It was too expensive. And so everything the interviewer did was scripted. Well, then it was scripted according to, essentially, the dictates and interests of the corporation, obviously. And so then what you end up on with network TV is a discussion with a talking head representing that monolithic organization. You're not talking to another person. And if you were, that person would get fired, right? Because they would now be an individual instead of this immense machine that was necessary because the communication technology was so expensive. So you start with that, and then you might say, well... And furthermore, it was warped by the fact that the corporations of a certain size are protecting their existence, which of course they are, and so are the people within the corporation. Of course they are, just like we would fight for our hierarchical position. Of course. So, yes. But all that's gone now, and, and, and now we have this, and now we're figuring out what to do with it. Now, what you said there about the sort of the position of the journalist in the chair and how they become an automaton because their role is so prescriptive within that corporation, that's no different to something that, you know, Chomsky would have said 30, 40 years ago, you wouldn't be in that chair if you didn't share the beliefs of the corporation. This is, for me, chimed... Of course. Yes, of course. This chimed with something Yanis Varoufakis, the former uh, Chancellor of, of Greece under Syriza in that brief moment after the economic crash when there was a surge of leftist populism in Greece said he said that when he met with the EU he realised even when talking to the most powerful minister over economics with whom they were arguing about their sanctions he recognised that that uh, Chancellor uh, it was someone like a German Chancellor or whatever said that he only had the power and this is in some ways 
plainly obvious. He only had the power afforded to him by his role. That suggests to me a kind of intransigence. And like when you talk about like sort of people in a mainstream media outlet that they're a representative of a certain set of ideals, well, the same becomes true in a political establishment. Now we know that there are relationships between, obviously we've known for a long time, there are relationships between media and government that involves lobbying, commerce, shared interest. Now I know like when you talk about it from a sort of an anthropological perspective, you say, of course, we would all protect our positions in a hierarchy. And this returns me to the point, Jordan, where it requires of us as individuals a kind of personal awakening um, that, that perhaps that the one has to undergo a kind of neck here. Am I saying that right? The kind of journey into darkness that you know that you have recently experienced, and I'm sure most of us have our own version of. And and to come out the other side of that with a conclusion, not being how do I achieve more as an individual, but how do I convey love? How do I convey Christ okay, consciousness? Okay. How do well, I? Let, let's start. Well, let's start with that then. So so so. First of all, you know, everyone is now a TV producer and a radio host if they want to be. If you if you have a voice, you can you can communicate with you have the technology to communicate with as many people as you want. So then the next question is, do you have the will, the ability, the desire and all of that? But you certainly have the te- the technological means. So it isn't that people have been rendered voiceless. They have in certain regards, but in other ways they're so powerful that it's absolutely beyond comprehension. And so and then, and I would say, well, I am definitely of the mind that it's best for, it would be best for everyone to orient themselves. And I've tried to figure out what that orientation would mean. And it's, some of it is, and, and I've used history as my guide as much as I've been able to, philosophy and religious ideas, all of that, trying to puzzle this out. It's like, well, the love part is, okay, you have to decide. You serve someone. That's an old idea. It's Christ or Satan. Fundamentally, that's an archetypal reality. And what that means in some sense is that you're either working for the betterment of things because you're in favor of being and its flourishing and perhaps even its playful and beautiful flourishing. You've decided that despite the horrors of existence, despite the horrors of existence that would drive you to resentment and bitterness and hatred and the desire to destroy, you've decided no. I'm going to aim up, I'm, and that's love. It's like I've, I'm going to aim up, and I'm going to bring everything I can with me. Okay, then the next thing is truth in service of that. And one thing I learned, I think, is that I, I tweeted something out the other day, and like I see people all the time, and they have something they want, and then they use their language to get it. Okay, that's not, that's not how to use language. That's wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because why do you think that your theory about what you want is right? If it's wrong, then you're saying things that are wrong. And so I would say instead, try this. Say what you believe to be true and accept what happens. And that's an adventure, man. You do that. You do that for 10 years and your life will be so different that you won't be able to believe it. It's unbelievably adventurous. To only say what you think is true in right there and then. To be in that moment and to have decided that there's no agenda. I'm just going to say what I think. Regardless of the consequences. And I don't mean carelessly. I really do not mean that. The absolute opposite of careless. You pay attention to every word. And the consequences are miraculous. This is a kind of um, mysticism, I think, that you are describing. Uh, firstly, the ability to remain entirely present. Secondly, the idea that you can respond authentically without uh, an agenda for of personal advancement. This requires, I think, a kind of transcendence. It certainly, from the, my understanding, would require a kind of ego death. The sort of energies that compete in me seem to, the, the tension seems to be between this sort of a, a very vivid sense of uh, love and awakening and service and sort of values of which I'm quite proud. And uh, and and still, you know, uh, I would say, I don't know if I would want to call them atavistic, but quite, quite primordial, sometimes unformed, certainly libidious concupiscent sort of rushes you know like that i'm i i love the idea of living authentically and truthfully in a moment and how sort of potent radical punk and effective divine that could be mischievous tricksterish almost and the you know right yeah that's got the romantic element there because it's unpredictable it's absolutely unpredictable you just don't know what's going to happen you know, but if you like, let, let's say you have faith, let's say you have faith. So let's, let's figure out here what we mean by faith. So we're going to say, um, 
I have faith that if I act out the proposition that being should flourish and I should aid that, I'm going to risk my life on that proposition. That's, that's going to orient me. I could be wrong, but that, I'm going to, that's going to be the direction of my life. And then I'm going to tell the truth in service of that. Well, the faith, the faith then is the acting out of that, is the, is the actual uttering of the words and, 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 and the willing to, willingness to observe what emerges as a consequence. And you think, well, do, do you believe that love and truth prevails? Do you believe that? Oh, if you believe it, act it out. Well, then you act it out and it's very unpredictable and, and you do have to watch for the emergence of these counter positions that you describe. You believe it, so you act it out, and you observe what happens, and you accept that as, as, you accept that as, as, regardless of the consequences in some sense, by presuming from, to begin with, that if it emerges as a consequence of the actions of love and truth, then it is by definition good, regardless of what you think at that moment. I mean, because you have to put your faith somewhere, right? Like, because you don't know everything. You're stuck with it. So do you got a better, do you have a better theory than that? I don't, I can't find a better theory than that. No, like the requirement for faith is pretty clear. The limitations, uh, our, uh, the, the limits of our capacity for knowledge, the limitations of the senses, the uh, abiding mystery, these seem to be perennial. They don't seem like they're going to be surmounted any time soon. I, I recognize that. I am drawn to ask you, like, w like when you went into this terrible crisis of health with yourself and Tammy, your wife, and that it was all consumed by this great suffering, you dis like you disappear into this, you know, from the external perspective for for several years. And like during this time, there's this incredible ongoing cultural war, sort of peaking out uh, that again sort of dissolves into um, you know the tr the end of Trump's pe presidency and the emergence of Joe Biden and this kind of global pandemic. The world shifts seminally during this period how do you feel that how do you adjust to that being having been through what you've been through personally which we've touched upon and i've you know we've talked about uh, previously how do you feel about what's changed culturally how and and how how do you uh, line these ideas up now well i would say i'm i'm still puzzling that out to some degree and like everyone partly because I'm faced with, as we all are, with this unbelievable technological revolution. I mean, I think, what do I, that's such a complicated question. I, I'm, I'm doing more of what I was doing before, I suppose. I still believe that, at least insofar as I'm concerned, that there isn't anything better than I can be, that I can be doing than continuing to encourage people. And that's what, how I see my role, is that, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm trying to, let me tell you a story, okay, I'll, I'll, just a quick story, and this, this happens to me on a regular basis, um, but this happened today, I was walking down, I was sitting on Bloor Street, which is a main street in, in, in Toronto, and uh, this kid came up, he's about 20, and he said, uh, I don't want to disturb you, but I, I watched your biblical lectures a few years ago, and they really helped me. And he was going to walk on, and I said, I said, what's your name? And I always ask people, because as soon as you get their name, then you're in a conversation. They know that you want to talk. It's an open invitation. And, and I do want to talk, because I want to find out, okay, I helped this kid, apparently. How? Exactly. What worked? Because then maybe I can do it again, right? So he said, well... Um, you know, it made me rethink my religious belief, and now I'm going to church. And I said, okay, like, are you going every week? He said, I know you don't go to church, you know, or you're not a practicing Christian. And, and I said, do you go to church? He said, yes, but it's online right now. I said, well, what do you do there? And he goes to the services, and then he has this group of 20-year-olds, and they talk to each other and try to orient themselves properly. And I thought, well, that seems good. That seems like a good thing. So, and, um, and he said that, I said, well, what else did you learn that was helpful? Uh, he, and he's going to law school. And he said, well, I learned to stop comparing myself to other people and berating myself for what I didn't have. And I learned how to reward myself for making incremental improvements. And I thought, so he's comparing himself to who he was yesterday, which is dead on. It's like, there's no envy in that, man. And, and that's a game you can win. 
and it's a, an improving game and anyone can play it. And it's so I thought that's great because now you know how to reward yourself. And so he's in law school in his second year. He said he's going to be a corporate lawyer in, in New York. So he has this massive opportunity because that's an immense opportunity. And he thought he's trying to figure out how to integrate his legal education in the corporate world with his profound emergent morality. And I think, yes, great, man. You hear a story like that, it's like, well, that keeps you going no matter what. Like, more of that, right? More of that. You can't get too much of that. And then I can tell people, you know, you want to look for something meaningful. You're not going to find anything more meaningful, more deeper than, deeper than trying to orient yourself towards the highest good, trying to tell the truth, and trying to further other people's development. It's so rewarding that it's, it's almost it's too much. That's the problem with it. It's, it's too much. And part of, I think, why I've been sick is because of that too much. You know, um, partly from observing how much lack of encouragement there has been for people and how many people are starving spiritually and psychologically because of that. I saw that on such a massive scale. But also to just see the consequences of having that addressed to the limited degree I've been able to address it. Like it happens all the time. And it, it, I had this guy, it's so strange. This guy walked by this guy the other day on Blur again, and he was kind of a street looking guy, kind of rough, you know, and bent over about 45, 50, but looking older than that. And, and he had a mask on and he wasn't looking so good. And he, he took his mask off and he came over to me. I had no idea what he, and he said, I love you. I thought, Jesus, my friend was walking with me. The guy told me about it. We walked away. I said, what do you make of that? And he, you know, he just shook his head. He said, you sure have a lot of people, men coming up on the street saying that they love you. It's like, it's a hell of a thing, Russell. Do you, and God, how could you want something more? How could you possibly ask for something more than that? How could anything that was narrowly selfish, let's say, in the sort of gr grasping capitalist mode, you know, to use the cynical left-wing uh, uh, caricature, and, and, and it's not like there's never truth in that, but we're all grasping, that's for sure. How could anything that could possibly produce, even in theory, compete with that? They're not even in the same universe. I completely I understand what you were saying. And I'm thinking about it, it's because you have this very particular background in clinical psychology and academia as a teacher and uh, the edification and raising up and teaching of people is plainly so important to you and it seems now more than ever and I feel how open-hearted you are and perhaps have always been and I um, I wonder if there's something... This um, the question continually asked of you of why do you feel like you resonate with males? Uh, it seems to me, I, I wonder, is there a wound in your maleness or a wound in your adolescence? Is there something in you that is open, do you feel, that has made this connection possible? Because it can't simply be the translation of these theories. I think some of it's actually the doing of my father. I think I had a good father and he encouraged me like my dad instilled within me his faith in me fundamentally like we had our set twos you know it's not like our relationship was without conflict but I knew I had something that none of my friends had or virtually none of them which is I knew that my dad fundamentally believed in me right fundamentally regardless of anything and what what he he thought that fundamentally I suppose that it was a good thing that I was around or that I was a good thing something like that but it was deep and, and that gave me a sort of it, 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 it confidence I suppose or faith both of those both of those I suppose it's it's it he encouraged me I had that I had that encouragement and I think, so you asked me a specific question. I, I, um, I'm encouraging young men. Why? Because I, I think 
I believe this. It's like, God only knows what you could do. And we need it. Like you, you're a good example. I mean, look at you. Christ, you're unbelievably creative. You're so smart. You jump from idea to idea. You're very charismatic, you know, and you have this immense talent. And that led you into wastelands of all sorts, you know, because you, you didn't know how to control it or, you know, you weren't oriented properly. God only knows why. But you're trying to gather that all up and to figure out what to do with it. It's like, great. Who knows what, who knows what piece of the puzzle you would contribute if you got your act together? And contributed everything you can. And I mean, it's clear that you're trying to figure that out. Otherwise, people wouldn't be responding to you. It's so, ma so many of the comments were, you know, I, my opinion of Russell was, you know, neutral or negative or whatever. But I watched this and like, he's really doing his best, obviously. And that really impressed me. So it's so nice to see that kind of judgment. Hey, It's like, well, I can see that he's trying. And so now I'm on his side. And so you can, it looks like you can kind of trust people to respond positively to that. And that's so nice, isn't it? That that's actually the case. That is. You can let yourself out. Yes, 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 yes. I, I can begin to, I get the idea that sort of, again, looking at it as best as I can interpret from a Jungian perspective, that some of these unformed primordial forces that found expression in some ways that were unhealthy for me and probably for others like, are, are now uh, aligning they're becoming hmm, uh, sort of I don't want to use the word colonized because it has so many negative connotations but uh, activated uh, towards positivity integrated integrated, integrated. yeah because you don't want to suppress them or repress them you want to bring them on board mm. yes absolutely and and that's you know and that's the other thing I'm telling young men too and 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 because I, I certainly believe this to be true all that aggression that capacity for aggression and violence that physical strength, that dangerousness, those are unbelievably useful once integrated, admirable. You know, I talked to Jocko Willink the other day, and, and, and the guy's a monster. You know, he's two feet thick, and he's, he's a warrior from the age of three. That's the kind of person he is. He goes to Naval SEAL training, and what do they teach him? You have your friend's back. You subordinate all that antisocial aggressiveness, that dominant striving, that power, that physical strength, that desire to destroy even all of that. You take that, you control it, you, 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 you serve other people with it. You have their back. And he says very straightforwardly, you know, that um, he's an effective leader to the degree that he's been an effective leader. It's because he takes care of the people around him. And that's it. So he integrates all that what could otherwise be, you know, catastrophic, criminal or genocidal horror. He's trying to integrate that into, uh, into, into whoever it is that he can be, if he's everything that he can be. You know, he told me about his, he got a literature degree after he had, had, had gone through the Naval SEALs. And I just kind of skipped over that um, for, I don't really know why. And he called my attention to it. And then we had a 20 minute conversation about the vital importance of literacy. And it was so interesting that this character, you know, who's got all these other attributes would then say, yeah, but, you know, I got literate. I became literate. I learned to communicate. And that made me, that multiplied my ability manifold. And so don't, don't hesitate to develop your, well, he didn't say it in these terms, but your logos. It's like, absolutely, absolutely. And men are turning to him, young men in particular, because he's such a good role model. He's written these books for little kids about how they can, you know, fortify themselves. And it's not no competitive games. Let's raise little boys like little girls. It's not that at all. At all. It's like stand up, man. Man up. Monster up. Get it together. And then go past that, right? Then subordinate that to truth and love and the ability to communicate. Then you're something. But th that way, the vices can be virtues, right? You don't have to say, well, well, we'll just eradicate aggression. Well, yeah, sure. It's like cutting off your arm. You're going to get rid of that f motive force? That'd be like getting rid of sexuality. You don't want to get rid of that. You want to integrate it. Yeah, it ain't easy. I mean, what I want to... Like and I, I loathe being asked questions like this because it's sort of, but like because it's you'll see why when I ask it. Like I create. There's people that have a very negative response to me. There sort of always has been ever since even when I was famous for frivolity. There were people that and I, 
And with you, you found yourself sort of very quickly at the heart of a cultural war for some reasons that were, I suppose, obvious because of the nature of your emergence into sort of public life and the very, you know, the specifics of that. But what I think when I see you talking, when I listen to you talking and you are an open hearted man, you have these sort of plainly your relationships with females define you. How do what do you think is the energy behind the specifically gendered aspect of like the the public discourse prior to you know the the couple of years you took off of health reasons? What what's you know if we can say like you know in your analysis, which I I would still query about like you know the the attraction of men is because you encourage and you give them confidence. I I feel that somehow pain the wound has to be the point of connection, but that's probably me bringing my own stuff. Um, and and then for females, like, no, is, no, I don't think it's just that. I mean, what's being activated? There's something. The- there's something about that that's right. I mean, I I, I well, that's a good good question. It's not like I. I understand why the, the the people that I'm talking to are disaffected. The men I'm talking to are disaffected. I understand that. That's the shared pain, I suppose. I understand why they're doubtful and about putting forward their best. I, I I'm not I'm not contemptuous of that. Even I, I see that it's a deep wound in in a sense, and no wonder. And and it is something that we all share, but. But you can just admit that and, and then figure out what to do about it. That's the next thing. Despite all that, you say, yes, really, really, that's the case. It's the, despite the patriarchal tyranny, despite the malevolence of our ancestors, despite the Holocaust, despite the catastrophe of human history and you know, the inadequacy of your own ability and, and the blackness of your heart, it's like none of that's justification for not moving forward in properly so then what do you feel like um you know and it's a question i ask again of myself is it must be interesting i imagine to, for someone to be literally an analyst and then be the subject of so much cultural attention that is um you know polarizing uh, so we've sort of D- discussed a little what what we you know you feel that is that you know that speaks so deeply to men and i'm getting a clearer idea of it but like the the inverse of that the sort of the famous youtube you know let's call them the youtube greatest hits that channel four news interview the gq one what what do you think was being driven at there i understand that you know like sort of because i've watched them and i know them that sort of it's on the, like no you're not um, paying attention to gender inequality pay gaps etc and and I'm, I'm familiar with your arguments uh, like which are obviously again underwritten by data but what do you think is the emotion the feeling why is it why this academic at this point in history why well i why? would say well some of it's okay so f- some of it is that females are rising up to challenge the patriarchy. They are doing that, and and they're more powerful than they ever were. Like, women have always pushed and tested men. Well, why? Well... If you're enjoying this conversation, please join me over at Luminary for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin and now for Above the Noise as well. Go to luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial. I hope you like it. As I say, it could be as little as $2.99 a month. What else are you going to get for $2.99 a month? A a ninth of a rock of crack? What? Well, I don't know. How much is crack now for a rock? I don't know. Why are you asking me? How much? Crack. Why not? Why crack? That's well, so for a rock, Demaya. It's only £10. It's interesting how drugs are quite stable in their pricing. Is an eighth still 15 quid? Is a quarter still 25 quid? Hello, my with this. Anyway, look, let's not get bogged down in drugs. I'm saying that Luminary is a good app. Two ninety nine. I love it. Two podcasts a week just from me. Forget the stuff from Trevor Noah, Lena Dunham, all sorts of other people. Thank you. Go over to luminarypodcast.com to start your free trial. See you there, baby.